Welcome to One Square Mile in North East Fife, a podcast from the University of St Andrews. I'm Ruth Sanderson and in each episode I'll be chatting to one of our academics about their life and the real world impact their research has on all of our lives. Today I'm joined by Professor Monique McKenzie from the School of Mathematics and Computing, who is the provost, one of the university's assistant vice principals. My current role means that I look after all the postgraduates here at St Andrews, so that's the taught master students, um, PhD students, um, anybody on a postgraduate degree, really. Yeah, so I think about everything on the student journey for our postgraduates from when they first apply to us to um, what their experience is like with us and on all of the curriculum elements that they experience through to what happens after they leave. So, you know, how do they experience the, the job market and are they prepared and so on. So it's the, it's a full range. It, well, it's also you've got very impressive job title because you're provost and principal of St. Leonard's. Yeah, so the head of St. Leonard's College. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've had a pretty unusual career path, really. So um, I was a statistician just as a lecturer for a long time, and then I became the director of teaching in mathematics and statistics. Uh, And then I picked up a deputy directorship in the new graduate school for interdisciplinary studies. So it was a brand new school, really, um, that looks at interdisciplinary postgraduate taught programs. And that was fascinating. It gave me lots of room to think about curriculum design and um, it was yeah a fantastic opportunity and then I became the director of that school and also became the, the, the provost so looking after postgraduates I think in the past the, the provost role was a bit more of a cameo role um, and that's become a lot more I guess comprehensive since I've assumed the the post <laughs> I love it I really love it yeah it's 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 never boring um, I'm able to come up with ideas and propose solutions to things. Um, we had some pretty robust discussions in the principal's office, but they're a great team of people to work with. I, I really love it there, yeah. Now, tell me then, you, you mentioned about being a statistician. Um, what led you into the world of, of statistics? It's uh, a good question. Um, I actually thought growing up I wanted to be a scientist because I thought that that was going to get me a job ultimately. Um, I didn't know much more than that, than, than science gives you jobs, I guess. Um and I was actually pretty good at mathematics and statistics at, at high school. But at university, I thought I was going to do, first of all, maybe I'd be a medic because that's one of the jobs I knew existed. That was a professional job. Um, but realised pretty quickly that wasn't for me. There was animal kind of um, animals in the laboratories which bothered me and I've been a vegetarian for a long time, so that was disturbing. And there was a lot of rote learning, which I didn't enjoy either. I guess I'm more investigative than procedural in the way that I think and and like to work so yeah so I, I I just loved mathematics and statistics at university and then combined that with the biological knowledge I'd been gaining to really work as a biostatistician and I still work at the interface between biology and statistics. You actually do the most incredible work and I think that you're kind of underselling yourself by saying you're a statistician because the impact of your work has very clear real life impact. Tell me a bit about, about the, the statistical modelling work that you're you're involved in. Well I guess it's twofold. I mean I've for a very long time I've been working in environmental impact assessment for offshore wind farms and I'm still doing that actually and just this week I had a, another meeting with a, a team in Denmark that I'm working with. We'll be working with a team in the US coming up also to look at the environmental effects of these wind farms. So what happens when you put something in the, in, in the ocean, um, how does that displace 
animals, what's the change in distribution and abundance? What does that mean for the population? So, How do you go about doing that? How do you go about modelling that? Uh, I mean, uh, keep it simple. Yeah. <laughs> I'm arts and humanities. Well, uh, so generally the data is collected um, from aircraft and you've got high definition digital images. Um, and then somebody provides me with locations from those images um, and from there, we look at modelling the distribution and abundance. So given various bits of information about the environment, what's the, um, what's the probability I'm going to find something there and, and in what number will I find it there? And then what happens through time? So if we keep going back to that same place and resurveying the area, what can we detect in terms of shifts in abundance and distribution? And what might that mean for the population? So are they just shifting and resting or are they shifting and now not feeding whereas before they were so trying to think about how does that affect the population presumably that's tricky when you you're in um multi-geographical sites you know because not everything's going to have the same species the same population the same variables how, how do you deal with that the methods can actually be quite quite similar across applications but obviously the inputs need to change depending on the the characterization of the site so it's all about what goes in as to what can come out essentially so you have to gather the right information that's absolutely right Um, but actually the methods can carry quite far and and the same sorts of methods that I've been developing including software um, with 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 others these things are always teamwork they're never ever done by yourself um, that have applied in offshore wind developments now apply out in Africa looking at wildlife crime um, because yes, the inputs are different, and yes, there are there are, of course some adaptations you must um, think about when you shift to a new a new area and a new problem. But the heart and soul, if you like, of the of the methods that you develop and software that you create for one application can usually be applied in some modified form somewhere else. Even though that the, the two aspects of my work might sound very different, they actually share a lot of um, a, a similar methods. Yeah, because you've got um, the work with wind farms and environmental impact, but you've also got a, a huge body of work to do with um, with poaching mm. in Africa. Tell me a bit about about that and how that that all started. Um, actually, via some charitable teaching um, I was doing with, with the team. So we would teach each January here in St Andrews a statistical modelling workshop, and all the funds that we raised there we would use to, to fund travel and accommodation for myself and a team um, that I was leading to go out to various parts of Africa and teach. So again, all teamwork. I, I work with some fantastic people, people who have become lifelong friends for me. And we just teach in our holidays. So we'd go and teach for free. Um, the only condition was that the host would not charge the people to attend the workshop except for basics like lunches or whatever. And that found us in various parts of Africa, so in South Africa, Ghana, Kenya, Mozambique, Namibia, the list is fairly long, and over about 10 years we delivered sometimes two workshops a year with the help of folks also in South Africa that helped us find hosts and sorted out some of the complications because these things aren't easy. So I found myself out in Africa quite often, and then that led to a research program in one of the countries. And then quite quickly I found myself at a symposium when this was being discussed, and somebody said, I think we could use animals as surveillance um, to try and detect wildlife crime and there were some lots of questions about how that could be done. And I just went up and spoke to him afterwards and said, I think I can help you. That was it? That was it. And did you think or did you think, I think I can? No, no, I absolutely knew I could help him. Sometimes you have those moments where there's like no other place you'd rather be. And that was one of those moments. So then what happened? Uh, we just started talking about what could be done and the sorts of data we could collect from the field. I had some ideas um, based on other work that I had done and about how we could develop that. 
And then we just started, basically. I applied for some funding. Actually, St Andrews, they gave me some money to, to buy my first piece of kind of equipment that I needed. And working with folks um, out in the field, uh, we managed to to start the program. And people were pretty sceptical, I have to say. Even senior management were almost scoffing at the idea that we could use animals as surveillance. You know, going about their normal business to, to locate large carcasses, um, but it works. It's quite a mental leap to make <laughs> for, for most people. So can you just explain to me that the sort of nitty-gritty of how that actually works. (laughs) It's a pretty simple idea, really. Um, You know, you can imagine if an animal's illegally shot, these animals are usually large, usually elephant, rhino, um, sometimes giraffe or or, um, other animals. Then, then of course, it dies, and animals attend the carcass like they would attend any carcass to to feed. But the behaviour that they exhibit at the carcass is very different to the sorts of behaviour they'd exhibit otherwise. So I've been gathering data. It comes in real time, the data now, from various species and various animals. And what I'm able to do now, with the help of others, is to identify unusual behaviour. So I ask the question, what's the chance? What's the chance that this animal is doing this type of activity and moving this little, really, at this time of the day in this location? And if the probability is low... And the characteristics of that behaviour looks like it's feeding, then we we guess that it's feeding. And then we send somebody to that location to investigate, and they might be ground patrols, it might be someone by aircraft, and then they can go to the scene, gather fresh um, evidence if it's a crime scene. And if it's a natural death, and that happens too, then we can recover the tusks and horns and stop them from entering the, the illegal market. So how do you tell what's feeding on a carcass? How can you identify that that's happening? Because we tag the animals. So we have equipment which the animals wear that doesn't harm them who detect the activity. So I look at the spatial locations of the animals and how that's varying. So you're looking for clusters and patterns, right? Right. I'm trying to detect um, unusual events from the baseline. And because all the animals are so different, actually, um, this needs to be done on an individual level because the individuals themselves have their own special personalities. So it's important to contextualise their behaviour with their normal behaviour, not, not just some sort of average generic. Oh, it's, it's totally consumed me, really. I mean, it, it's, it's more manageable now. Um, I, I obtained a, a Microsoft grant. It was a Microsoft AI for Earth grant um, as part of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. That enabled the project and the computing, if you like, to run real time because what I was doing was having to do it manually every day, update, because I have an online tool which we've created which others can use from another continent to locate points of interest, right? So this is running real time and it's updated all the time. But it used to be just me. And, you know, I was never without my machine. I'd be on holiday, it's Christmas Day, it's birthdays, you know, and mummy's mummy's updating the shiny, you know. (laughs) It's like... (laughs) So, but with the help of Microsoft and others, we're able to now have it running, like, constantly so that there's a constant update waiting at any time for somebody on another continent uh, continent to have a look at. Now, you're, you're being vague in uh, talking about the, the specifics mm. of the animals that are being poached and are being used. Why is that? Well, because when you work in this sort of field, you have to sign all sorts of agreements about what you can and can't say. I, I have to be vague about, you know, where where this is working. Although, to be fair, it's finding uh, use in, in more than one country now. So this is... Um, and, and what was, you know, almost like a side project has become the main way that some teams are targeting their patrol efforts words getting around you know that that this project is happening but it's hugely sensitive isn't it because it's not just about illegal activity um you know if somebody knew exactly what sort of animal you were using 
gosh, they could go out and... Or poison everything. The problem is fentanyl everything. poisoning, yeah. That's that's the main risk at the moment. I mean, it does actually happen in some countries anyway where poachers will deliberately poison a carcass to kill anything that, that arrives. Because, you know, some animals can be spotted from the air um, as they find carcasses. Some can be spotted travelling to, to a carcass and that can raise the alarm. Villagers can raise the alarm with, with the local authorities or whatever, so or local people. And so. I guess it's about keeping gamekeepers safe as well, isn't it? The teams that actually go out to respond to these things. Yeah, you know, in some parts of, of Africa, it, it's it's very dangerous. And I've, I've spoken with lots of people over several years who have talked about people being killed, poisoned, even people who work at the periphery of the, of the anti-poaching efforts. What impact do you think your work has made? Well, it's always part of a story, right? So we certainly identify locations, we send people there. This is a daily thing. The current success rate is about 93%. 93% of the time we send somebody to a location. A carcass is found, it's not always a very, it's not always the largest carcass. And, and that's actually quite important from a statistical perspective, because in order to make sure you're, you're catching one end of the range, you need to make sure that you're also catching the lower end of the range. The fact that the patrol efforts are now completely guided really by this project is, is tells us something. Also, they have made arrests based on based on this work. And also we've recovered, it's very difficult to put a price on these things, isn't it? But others will, so I will. We've recovered over 10 million pounds worth of tusks and horns that would have entered the illegal market. So even just recovery of ivory and, and rhino horn from natural deaths has reduced the supply to the illegal market. You know, and that has to weaken those illegal networks. With figures that large and an impact that great, you, you must be feeding into what governments are doing in Africa as well to combat this. Always indirectly. Um, and you develop really good relationships with, with some of the senior people that you work with because there's you know, obviously an element of trust there, which is so rewarding. And it, it's great fun, actually. I just love it. Actually, one of the, the problems of the pandemic is I can't really travel like I, I would like to, so I'm desperate to get back out there because there's something about working out in the African continent. It just gets under your skin. Because where are you doing it at the minute? <laughs> I can't tell you that, but it's a, it's a, it, it's not there. <laughs> but I love the fact that you know you could be sitting at a computer in Scotland, mm. and all of this information's coming in, and it's feeding into these real time events. You mm. know, to do with one of the the biggest illegal trades in the world. You see, what strikes me about um, statistical modelling and mm. the work that you do is that actually you can apply. Mm. The, the patterns and the things you look for to almost any problem. So how do you decide what ah. the next problem is? Well, um, just recently, in the last year or so, I've been leading up the Coalition for Anti-Trafficking Research in Scotland, CATRAS, because, you know, you'll probably be aware that the networks are the same, right? There's a lot of commonalities between the networks that traffic people, wildlife products, guns, money, there's a lot of shared resource there. It doesn't make much sense to set up independent legal networks when you can really use one. And if you're dropping something off, you're probably picking something up too. So you're absolutely right that um, I think these sorts of this sort of approach could be used in another in other applications just to try and identify unusual events from the baseline. And I've already been I've already spoken with with folks in in the UK about how that that it might apply in, in Scotland. You're like a criminal's nightmare. <laughs> But in all seriousness, though, it, it's a high-risk job. You know, your research is high-risk. Yeah, but inaction is also action. So I think, you know, if you can do these sorts of things, then you should. It's a bit like my children's panel work, really. I've, I haven't been doing that since the pandemic. But uh, it's a sort of thing where you think if you can contribute, 
in a way that others maybe can't, then you should. Tell me about the children's panel oh. because it's, no, it, it's a really interesting aspect that people could get involved in mm. if they wanted to and, and you've chosen to. So just explain to me what, what it is because I'm sure a lot of people aren't aware of the children's panel in Scotland. It's really a place where you can talk with young people and their families about the difficulties that they're facing and try and help them make a decision. It's, well, it's actually an alternative really to the court system. So... It is true that, that you kind of are involved with imposing sometimes legal orders. Um, compulsory supervision orders would be one example of that. But it's really just trying to find a workable solution for, for the young person, which might be with their family, it might not be with their family, to try and yeah, help them through difficult situations. And with the background that I had, I thought, well, since if I could face looking at the social background reports and thinking about those situations and talking with young people and those difficulties, then, then I should. Now you touched on your background there, Monique. Explain to me a little bit about that. Where, where did you grow up and, and how was that? The, the polite version, it was pretty difficult. The short version is there was very little money in the house, not really enough to make ends meet. My parents always worked, but there wasn't enough at the end of the month, really, or probably end of the week as it was then. It was pretty chaotic. Lots of conflict. There's no short of money, but no shortage of conflict. Lots of mental health issues. My mum had uh, several mental health crises, I guess, um, which I helped look after her through. Yeah, I'm estranged from my father uh, since I was a teenager after I threw him out of the house. Gosh, that's a tough start. And it has obviously, for you, transferred into you in action and in helping in, in difficult situations. But it could have gone... The other way, and I'm sure you see that in the children's panel as yeah. well. I think it's just luck, really. I think I'm just made of the DNA that means I can use it as a fuel, I guess. And I see it a bit like that. I think families provide fuel in a couple of ways. One can be positive because they're surrounding you with supports and love and all of that. Um, but even if they don't, uh, that can still be fuel. Yeah. Does it still fuel you? The resilience that comes with all of that does. You know, there are very few things that shake me, I guess. But, you know, there's a lot of luck involved and a lot of timing involved. I mean, you know, I've also had some, some fantastic people in my life. I've got two great children and a lovely partner. And, you know, all of that really matters. Yeah. And I think actually your friends that you develop as, and I've certainly developed them by working at St Andrews, have become my family. So, yes, it does, it does fuel me. I mean... It's an interesting, I have an interesting relationship with education, I guess, because it was never something that was valued in the family home. But I, I somehow knew that education was my way out. Were you good at school? Oh, oh the schools were pretty rubbish, really. <laughs> I mean, I have to be, and, and I know this because I somehow got funds to go to like a boot camp type, type revision um, school, like a local polytechnic in the last year of high school. And my grades lifted in a couple of my subjects from mid-60s to high-90s, just because I had some decent tuition for the first time. Um, it was a low socioeconomic school, low socioeconomic area. I mean, it was... I think we had about 1,600 kids at the school and only maybe 90 children made it to the last year or something. And, like, five of us went to university. So kind of it, it wasn't a situation where it was fostered or it was encouraged that you would no, be academic no, or read? No, no, no. Or... I, was, I was considered precocious because I had a vocabulary. I, I think I just saw it as a way out and I thought this would be transformative and it was. The other thing I did actually, I got some money from Rotary, the local Rotary Club somehow, to do a, like a local summer school at the at University of Auckland. Much like the Sutton Trust Summer School that we run here at St Andrews actually. And that was genuinely transformative. I was able to 
feel what it would be like to be at university and I just loved it it was just I felt like I could be at home there and I would meet people a bit more like me did you I was going to ask you did you find your home in academia definitely and that's thanks to the people that I joined at the centre here that's called Korean Centre for Research and Ecological and Environmental Modelling here were just so incredibly supportive from the start. I came very young. They hired me before I'd even finished my PhD and I finished over here. I'd done a lot of teaching in Auckland and I had um, training in in that area as well, but um, because I funded my way through PhD, my PhD. Yeah, because the people here are just so supportive and, and just lovely. And it was the sort of place where you can play to your strengths. So you didn't have to be the same as everybody else. And that was appreciated in in the in the group that I was hired into. You said you were you were hired very young mm. and before you'd finished your PhD. But what do you think it was that they saw in you that they thought, yeah, she should be here? <laughs> I don't know, brave and crazy in equal measure. <laughs> it's no bad thing. <laughs> I'm definitely not work shy. Um, and yeah, I am actually a very optimistic person. Um, very often I have to find someone a lot more negative than I am to bottom out some of my ideas <laughs> so I can uh, see the things at the edges which I might have missed. Yeah. But then you mentioned being brave there. I think sometimes we forget that about academic research is that there has to be a bravery involved if you're going to tackle some of the biggest questions, the biggest problems that affect the world. Mm. You've got to have the balls mm you know, to put it in a, a very blunt way yeah. to actually take those things on. You're absolutely right. Um, you need to be able to be brave enough to take the risks, but you need to be in an environment where that's tolerated. Mm. I mean, it's true even the time since I've been here and since the research environment's moved on that the role of impact, for instance, was, I don't even think it was even mentioned, you know, when the um, when the REF first kind of came out and the way that research is examined or... or quantified. Tell me what the RAP is. It's the Research Excellence Framework and it's a way to somehow measure research activity in, in the United Kingdom and uh, the the role of impact and um, it's, it's become a lot more prominent in the last I don't know five or six years um, and that's been very convenient for me because that's the sort of thing which which drives me anyway. I've always been a, a problem driven statistician where I see a problem and I try and tackle it to try and, I guess, bring bring a solution to that problem. I think, um, you know, the universities uh, have a role to try and deliver for the public good. And we absolutely do do that. But I don't think we talk enough about it. I think my role as a statistician almost by default makes me a translator. So I can look at complex problems and we can have some fairly mathematical and statistical um, mechanisms to try and digest information uh, but then I have to explain it, and I love that part of my job, to regulators or, or government or any other end user. It might be people who work in an NGO or whatever, or, or students, right? So over time, you, you, learned to, you learned to rephrase things, to re-explain things, to give other examples. And that's actually part of my job as a statistician, to do that translation so that you know, both groups um, can, uh, can be served, if you like, by, by my expertise. The idea of, of dealing with computers and algorithms and coding mm. is, you know, a common thought. Kids are taught it in school now, but I'm guessing that when you did it, it, it was a bit rarer. Absolutely. And, you know, children in schools are getting computer training, which is fantastic. So I, I absolutely hope that that's the way that it continues to develop uh, because we need our brains to be working on very complicated things from a variety of angles. And I'm a big fan of interdisciplinary projects like the one I work on where people 
all look at the problem from their angle in a very detailed way to try and jointly come up with a solution that either one of us couldn't do by ourselves. So I think that's the way things need to move because you know, problems are becoming even more complex. So I think we do need teams of people looking at the same problem from a variety of, of angles. Yeah, and one of those angles is computationally um, because, you know, we're gathering data from all over the place. You know, famous um, sayings like we're uh, drowning in data and starving for knowledge, you know, these sorts of things. We're, you know, we, can, we often wear devices which we collect that, 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 that send us data. So it's everywhere, but it's what we do with it. Can statistics save the world? Only if it's part of a team. <laughs> That's my honest view there. Yeah, it's always going to just be part of the picture. I think we always need to have that human element, you know, and I'm a big believer in the combination of what has traditionally been thought of as hard skills combined with the soft skills. And I think we're starting to see that. I think the pandemic actually drew that into sharp focus where people from a variety of um, ex- um, from a variety of disciplines needed to work together on, on a common problem. And I think we saw the combination of, of the hard skills and the soft skills working together. And for the first time, actually, there were press releases or press conferences when you had statisticians actually at the podium. And that was that's quite that's quite new, actually. The pandemic really has raised the profile mm. of of statistics mm. because and modelling because we were all glued to the telly every day at three o'clock for the prime minister's briefing. Oh, I wonder. It, suddenly, everybody seemed to become a statistician overnight. <laughs> Before they became a, a, a vaccine professional. Exactly, a medical expert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that it is, that is good. It just provides role models, I think, for others. I, role models, are, I think, are very important. Also for people like myself from an access background, I think the more people we can put in front of the general public, shining, if you like, doing what they love, I think is a really important um, a really important aspect of life. Yeah. Absolutely, because there is still a problem, isn't there, about um, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds getting into academia, getting into research. How do you begin to tackle that problem? As someone who's who's been there? General awareness to start with. I mean, I, I didn't even know that you could be an academic. I mean, I guess on some level I knew that there would be, you know, university lecturers and that's how I was going to get maybe eventually some university education. But I mean, it just didn't sit well with my identity. I, I was the first in my family to go to university. My extended family, my mum was one of seven children. Nobody went to university. So I didn't even imagine that I would even find myself there, let alone with a postgraduate education. So I think we need funding. I think we need role models. Um, I think we need people to share their story, um, even if it's difficult. Yeah, and to, and to provide those support networks for people who are coming in through universities who didn't maybe think they would be um, coming into university anytime soon. Um, because it is, it is a very different thing, you know. I think when you don't have, you're not sitting around the dinner table with, with professionals that have professional careers, you know, to try and imagine what it would be like to be in that situation. You just don't have, just don't have that. Yeah, it's, it's actually alien. Yeah. So I think it's a combination of funding, support, the soft support, and making sure you can build networks of people that are similar, and also your yeah, people sharing their story and and, in some way, being role model for others. We are at St Andrews doing a lot um, in, 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 this, in this way. I think we've, we're making a concerted effort to try and look at all of the ways that we can help diversify our community at undergraduate and postgraduate level. And that includes funding. It's putting real money in there. But also thinking about ways that we can access students who wouldn't normally come to us. Um, so providing those those networks, um, providing role models for these students and, and to genuinely welcome them in, really. Yeah. What would you say to your 14-year-old self? 
it's definitely going to get better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think working hard is an important part of this and something I talk, talk to my children about, you know, they've obviously got a very different upbringing than I did. But my only requirement is that they try their best. They have to show up and they have to try. So I think as long as you can instill that in your children, then I think that's all they pretty much need with support around them, obviously, is, is, is important. But uh, yeah, they just have to show up and they have to try. And, and that's something that we all have to do, um, regardless of our background. But some of us have to try harder than others. <laughs> Because the start's very different. Mm. What's next for your research? Well, I, I'll be provost, I think, for a, another two or three years. But once I once I demit as provost and, and go back into into my research and teaching role, the project out in Africa is already now becoming a a multi country um, project. So that that's already going to consume a lot a lot of um, time. I just I just love that project, and you know actually my offshore wind farm work is is still continuing, and and that's now I mean there was just in, in the paper on the weekend there was the mention of the artificial island in the North Sea. I'm one of the people working on the environmental impact assessment for that, and then just last night I actually found out that we'll be working on the um, a big offshore wind farm project out in the US with a university in, in the US. So more of the same. I would love to develop um, Catrus. Um, it's just at the moment a research network of, of people working on similar things, but I'd like to coalesce that somehow around a centre, like an actual physical centre. So been actively trying to obtain funding for that. There really isn't a lot of money at the moment to combat uh, trafficking. There's a, a big focus on, on modern slavery down south of the border, looking at that, but there really isn't the same funds and investment up in Scotland, which is a real shame um, for lots of reasons, um, but we have a lot of unmanned ports up in Scotland. So I think there's a lot of movement at, at the borders, which we're not really aware of. So how do you begin um, to get that ball rolling? Just, you know, as an academic, how can you lean on government to say you need to, to some funding in here or is it private funding or, or how does that work once you identify a huge problem like that mm. how do you pay to solve it so i we have developed a, a proposal um for it was for the proposal was developed for a research council it wasn't successful but i have been speaking with the police in scotland about how we can do something together and that was received positively but it's not something that that i can lobby if you know what i mean i, I can't kind of yeah, I, I can't turn up as far as I'm aware <laughs> to hold your and say, hey, how's about some money? Monique, um, it wouldn't surprise me if you did, <laughs> actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so it would be to develop the, uh, the, the, the CATRIS, which is currently a research network of people, but into some funded projects. So we could actually start working on, on some dedicated projects together with some deliverables and some evidence um, about how we can really... Um, deliver for the public. You see, it's pretty compelling, isn't it, for a government? Um, it's a hard thing to turn down when you've got someone like you turns up and say, this is a huge problem. They know it's a problem. Here, well, you know it's a problem. Here's even more data for you. Here's how we solve it. And here's how we've solved this sort of issue in other parts of the world. We're also missing an opportunity. I mean, with, with the COVID restrictions and the lack of movement mm. of people and, um, and lack of transportation and movement across borders, actually... You know how I spend a lot of time trying to identify unusual events from the baseline. Well, when the baseline is no longer noisy, you start to see things a lot more clearly. 
You're like, oh, that's quite unusual because there's not much else happening. There's no noise over the top of it. That's right, yeah. So there's actually a lot of valuable information which I think we need to start looking at, which we've been able to gather over the last 18 months or so, um, because it hasn't been the same extent of people moving across um, across borders, but also um, within within countries. And we certainly found that from the, from the poaching side, that we've seen a decrease in poaching in some parts of Africa because they simply can't move the products out without detection. Yeah, and there just hasn't been the same flights going to and from because most of these products are not processed in-country. They're, they're processed outside of the country and then sold somewhere else. So the lack of movement of people and aircraft and um, other sorts of vehicles has actually, in some ways decreased the poaching in some parts of the world because they because they would be more easily detected. And that's that's the key is to try and identify where the supply chain is and try and interrupt it. Mm. So it's figuring out what the drivers are, where these networks are operating and how, and then finding ways to interrupt them. There's a really interesting conversation to be had about the role of academia and government mm. and how much influence is allowed and how much government should be or governments because it's not just this government it's every government with a university in its country should be responding to data-driven solutions to, to, to huge problems is it a frustration for you you know we are not an irrelevant elite you know we need to be at the table in the meetings part of those conversations and I don't think that's happening I don't think that's happening at the highest levels anyway and I, I don't think the, you know, with the Trump administration, I think the uh, science was devalued and, you know, and, and even in the UK, you know, the, the, the opinion of experts was devalued over, over the last... We've had enough of so-called experts. <laughs> but you know what? <laughs> we're, we're all needed and, and more than before, actually. And I say this to my incoming students, that they have to be part of the solution, you know, and we're not irrelevant. We are, we should be front row and centre, actually, in some of these solutions and at least part of the conversation. Thank you to Professor Monique McKenzie for sharing her insights and explaining some of the work that she's doing here at the University of St Andrews. And thank you to you for listening. Look out for our next episode when we'll be talking to Professor Ali Ansari from the School of History here at St Andrews. You can find all our episodes through your favourite podcast hosting service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do like, share and review. And never miss an episode by clicking subscribe to One Square Mile. <laughs>